This week's item in the news. I know this is going to be disturbing for some of you, but this week's item in the news is that the Kardashians are not sending out a Christmas card this year. I read that right alongside some very serious news, and I was contemplating, hmm, I wonder which the congregation would be more interested in. And so I settled on the fact that the Kardashians aren't sending out a Christmas card this year. Not because any of you are probably really disappointed about that. How many of you get one each year from the Kardashians? Um, no, it was really a news article. It was, it was on msn.com, which tends to focus on popular culture and news and stuff. I have a bunch of different websites I go to, and that's one of them. But it was, it was really a headline on there. And it, it made me think about celebrity culture. And there's always been celebrity culture. You go back into ancient times, and there were celebrities, people that were focused upon. But I think in our culture today, we, we tend to have a real celebrity media-driven culture. A lot of uh, news pro- or programs and, and magazines and different things that focus on celebrities. And it occurred to me that a lot of times the people who, who get so intensely focused on celebrities uh, miss out on so much. Because what, what happens, I think, with the celebrity culture is people are looking into to different magazines and, and programs and following certain celebrities, and there's this sense that life is happening somewhere else. You know? Unless you really know what's going on with Kim and Chloe, you're not exactly living life. And, and that's a dangerous thing. It's, it's sort of the same problem, I think, that, that occurs with TV. I mean, there's sex and violence and various issues on TV, but I think sometimes what happens with TV is we get so ensconced in that that we begin to think that life is happening somewhere else and other people are actually living life. And unless I'm vicariously connected to them, I'm missing out. So that's this week's item in the news. Open up your scriptures, would you, to Acts chapter 20. Now, I just want to say this. That, that's not to condemn anybody who likes to follow celebrities. But it is a caution. It is a caution. I am the first when I'm in the, the doctor's office to pick up the People magazine. So, Acts chapter 20. We finished last week in Acts chapter 19 with Paul coming out of this, this uh, incredible event where there had been... Um, Demetrius and the, the artisans who crafted the silver gods of uh, Diana or Artemis. And these people had brought um, up this debate about what Paul was doing. There had been a great revival in the city of Ephesus. And many of the people were turning over their books and throwing away their gods. And Demetrius was upset about that. And there was this great commotion that ended up uh, in the city. And finally, the city clerk calmed everybody down after a long period of time, and everybody sort of went back to their homes. That's where we pick up in, in Acts chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Now, Paul is in, in uh, Ephesus at this point in time. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea. It's up in the northern reaches of what is modern-day Greece. 
You have Macedonia, and then you have Thracia, which is in the middle portion, and then in the lower regions, you had Greece in Paul's time. So Paul's going across the sea to Macedonia, and he traveled through that area, Macedonia. That's where Philippi was, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, going south, where he stayed three months. And he probably here is staying in Corinth. This is probably actually when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. He's down in Corinth. And if you've ever read the epistle to Romans, hopefully you have, there's a real outcry against some of the baser activities of mankind. And Corinth was the place to see that. Corinth was a very vice-driven community. There was uh, a temple to to the goddess of sex there, and it was a very vice-driven community. So a good place for Paul to write the epistle to the Romans. He's there for three months. And because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, his intent was to head back for the Middle East to get to Jerusalem, eventually we'll see here. Um, But there's this plot against him. And so he decides to go back through Macedonia, that's back up north, and he's accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Now, these men are traveling with Paul because Paul has two purposes right now. Paul is sort of set like flint right now. You know that passage in in Luke where it says Jesus set his eyes like flint towards Jerusalem? Paul's sort of like that right now. In this latter part of the book of Acts, beginning actually in next chapter, chapter 21, Paul ends up in Jerusalem, and the rest of the book is all about Paul's tribulations and um, his incarceration and his travels in that state to Rome. But right now, Paul is set like Flint. He's traveling around to the churches that he has established. He has this sense that God is doing something in his life. We'll see that in a moment, that God is telling him by the Holy Spirit he's going to be imprisoned, and he's going to suffer many things. So Paul wants to go out and meet with all of these Christians that he has led to the Lord and to try to set them on a good, firm foundation. But the second thing that Paul is doing is he's taking up a collection for the churches that are in Jerusalem. There has been a a drought there. The people are very impoverished. And Paul is trying to collect uh, finances from the Gentile churches to take back to Jerusalem to help them, but to also to communicate to the Gentiles and to the Jews, this sort of collective um, body reality that there is no Jew or Gentile, that we are all one in Christ, as he wrote to the Galatians. And so these men are the men that the various churches have sent with Paul to administrate the gift, to oversee the collection and its administration. And so they're traveling with Paul. So they're waiting for Paul at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi. The we includes um, Luke at this point. Luke has rejoined the narrative. After the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So this sort of dates us, tells us what time in the calendar we're at. It's the festival of unleavened bread. That's also Passover. Passover and the festival of unleavened bread occur at the same time. Passover is a one-day celebration. The Festival of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day celebration. So it's happening about the same time. So, on the first day of the week, they're in Troas. Troas is back on the other side of the sea, 
on the Asian uh, continent there. Um, on the first day of the week, we come together, or yeah, we came together to break bread. Now that's an important sentence there. First day of the week suggests to us that very early on in the church's history, they began to worship on Sunday. Of course, Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And the church began to establish their worship community on Sundays. So it's no longer on the Sabbath where the Jews would worship, but the church is worshiping on Sunday. And here we see the church at Troas coming together on the first day of the week to break bread. And there specifically, breaking bread does not mean uh, taking a meal together, but it means breaking bread in the sense of taking communion. That was a part of the early church's worship every time they came together. Of course, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But for the early church, they would do it oftentimes at every meal. They would break bread, that is, to take the the bread and the cup and to remember and proclaim the death of the Lord. So that's what they're doing here. They're coming together. They're breaking bread. They're uh, enjoying communion together, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, remember, this is a totally different culture than what we live in today. They didn't have Saturday and Sundays off. So they probably joined together after the end of their work day, and Paul began, they broke bread, that Paul began to teach. So it's later in the evening. Um, as they join together, many um, different levels of society are congregated here. There are masters, there are slaves, there are rich, there are poor, there are male, there are female. All different kinds of people, very diverse in the early church. And and imagine how awkward that might have been for uh, masters to be taking communion with their slaves. But we read about in in the, the epistles that that was a reality in the early church. And so they're taking bread together. Paul's speaking to them. It's later in the evening, and he kept talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room. This could have been a home that they, were, that they were meeting in, oftentimes the case. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, Eutychus, the name means fortunate. So this was unfortunate for Eutychus. And this isn't really because Paul was a boring speaker. People, no doubt, were intently listening to Paul. It says there he was a young man. In the Greek, that could mean anywhere from the age of 8 to 24. And at that age, it was very possible uh, that he was a servant in someone's household, brought by his master here, sitting up by the window, trying to stay awake. He had worked all day, no doubt. And so he's getting very tired, falling into a deep sleep, falls out of the window, taken up for dead. And so Paul goes down, throws himself on the young man, Puts, up, puts his arms around him and says, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home and were greatly comforted, no doubt. Especially probably the family and perhaps the master of this young boy. So a raising from the dead here. Verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because we, he was going there on foot. So the group here mentioned in the first part of the chapter is taking a ship from Troas to Assos. A short, short sail, actually. Um, 
But Paul wants to walk, and not really sure why, but we know that Paul has a, a, this notion that he's heading for Jerusalem, heading for suffering. Could have been a time that he wanted to just spend in prayer. Could have been that he, he, he wanted the exercise. Maybe he just needed some alone time. We don't really know, but he made a specific point of going there on foot. And when we, he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, Miletus is about 30 miles or so from Ephesus. Miletus is on uh, the, the coast. Uh, Ephesus was inland at this point in time. And Paul was heading for Jerusalem and wanted to get there by Pentecost. Now remember, uh, this all sort of began uh, at the Passover, the, the festival of unleavened bread. And there's 50 days between the Passover and Pentecost. And Paul left Troas after a period of 12 days. So there's, what, 38 days left before um, Pentecost? And Paul is in a hurry. And remember, a lot of stuff happened in Ephesus. We read about that in chapter 19. There was this great revival, an outpouring of the Spirit, the gospel going forth, many people coming to Christ. And so Paul did not want to step back into that uh, arena because he knew it would prohibit him or delay his journey back to Jerusalem. But he does want to pass on a message to the elders there at Ephesus. So he calls for them. Those elders travel to Miletus, and that's where Paul meets them. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the very first day I came into the province of Asia. I've served the Lord with great humility, with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to go through here with these Ephesian elders. He's reviewing here what he has done in the past, what their memory of Paul was when he was with them, and what his testimony was. And they would no doubt recall that. He hasn't been gone that long, a few months um, since he left Ephesus. So, so he's reminding them of what he was like when he was with them. There's a foundation he has set. Verse 22, he begins then to review what the current circumstances are. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So Paul has this sense that the Spirit is driving him to Jerusalem for a purpose that he's not really sure about other than the Holy Spirit has told him that he will be imprisoned and that there will be hardships. Now stop and think about that for a second. Stop and think about your life. We, we often talk about the desire that we have to serve God. We'll share with others, pray for me that I can do the will of God. And we always ask for, and I've talked a lot about, the Holy Spirit filling us and enabling us to minister and to carry through ministry. But, but what if the Holy Spirit was telling you that what lied ahead for you was imprisonment and hardship? Would you still move forward? Would you be able to take the steps that led you into what you were certain 
was going to be hard times. It's something I think that we have to stop and think about. Because so often in our lives as Christians, we talk the talk, but we don't really walk the walk. When it gets tough, sometimes we take the easy path. Here Paul is saying, I know what lies ahead of me, and I know it's God's will for me. And I have set my mind to fulfill that. Now in verse 24, this is the important part of, of, if you don't get anything from this morning's message, I want you to pay a bit attention to this section because it's really powerful. Paul is beginning to review, beginning in verse 24, sort of who he sees himself as, as a Christian. And I want you to stop as I go through this section and think about yourself. How do you see yourself as a Christian? Verse 24, Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Now, the word there, consider, in the Greek is an accounting term. In other words, Paul has looked at the books. He's looked at God, and he's looked at his life, and he's looked at what God has said his life ought to be. And then he's looked at the alternative to all of this, his life as a Pharisee, the authority he had as a Pharisee in the Jewish religion, the prominence. And he's looked at all of these things and he's considered his life as worth nothing to him. Chris, a few weeks ago, when he was teaching, was talking about the the most dangerous gunslinger is the one who comes into the gunfight um, dead man walking, prepared to die. Not wanting to die, but prepared to die. Willing to give up his life. That's the person who's really dangerous. And that's what Paul's saying here. I've looked at everything. I've evaluated it. I've counted the cost. And my life in the scheme of things is worth nothing to me for the greater goal of doing God's will. Paul told the Philippians this in Philippians chapter 3. He, he said, All things to me are like rubbish for the goal of obtaining the higher calling of Christ. Paul also understood what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Jesus said, the thief comes to rob and to kill and to destroy. And some of you are going through that right now. Some of you are experiencing lives where Satan is attacking you. He's robbing from you. He's trying to destroy your life. But then Jesus counters that and says, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. That's Jesus' purpose for each of us, an abundant life, a life filled with joy and purpose and meaning. And Paul, in the first chapter to the Philippians, said, for me to live is Christ. He understood that to live in Christ is to have that abundant life, that joy-filled life, that purpose-driven life. But he also said, to die is gain. Life was full for Paul. He had everything that he could want. He had fullness of joy. But he was ready to go home because to go home meant to be with Jesus. That was gain. I've read that passage hundreds of times. And I still do not believe I I really have arrived there. I don't know about you. I get the for me to live as Christ part. But I'm not sure that I've 
ascertained what it means to know that to die is gain. But for Paul here, he did. He saw himself as an accountant. He was accounting the cost and he was weighing it out and he had purposed himself to follow after God. Then he says, my only aim is to finish the race. So he sees himself as a runner. Now in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, and this is towards the end of his life, he's imprisoned. He says, I've finished my course. I've run the race. And so what a great testimony for us to target for our lives. That at the end of our lives, we also are able to say, we've run our race. We finished our course. And there awaits for us a crown of righteousness when we see Jesus face to face. And we stand before His judgment seat and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear in my ear after I have died. I want His evaluation of my life to be one that is pleasing unto Him. So Paul saw himself as a runner, running a race. And he wants to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So he sees himself as a steward of what God has given to him. What has God given to you in your life? Financially, perhaps. Or in a, a family sense. What stewardship do you hold on to in your life as a Christian? God's given you something. Every person in this room has something given to them from God. Different for different people. I love the fact that this congregation is so eclectic, so diverse. Everybody's race is not the same. Everybody's books are not the same. Everybody's stewardship is not the same. But I can tell you one thing about being a steward. There's one thing that is important when you're a steward that the Scriptures tell us about. The Bible says one thing is important for a steward, that they be found faithful to their stewardship. Paul wants to maintain that faithfulness in his stewardship of the task that the Lord has given him. What is that task? It's the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul saw himself as a witness, a herald, if you will, of the gospel to proclaim and to live a life consistent with what he was proclaiming. That is the task Paul had been given by God. And he carried it out faithfully. He went throughout the, the Roman Empire, setting up churches, leading people to Christ, praying on his knees night and day, often in tears for the churches. Paul's greatest joy, he said, was the churches, but it was also his greatest burden. Because he knew that Satan was attacking and wanted to destroy and kill and rob from them. So Paul saw, Paul saw himself as a herald and a witness. So he passes this on to the Ephesian elders. Now, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Now, this is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 32, the watchman. Paul saw himself as a watchman, someone who had a responsibility to his fellow man. You know, there's that, that passage in Genesis where Cain says, 
What am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for those around me? And of course, the answer is yes. We do have an accountability or responsibility for those around us. Paul says here that he has declared the gospel faithfully and he is innocent of the blood of any of these people. As a watchman over them, he has been faithful to share his, his ministry as a herald of the gospel. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Powerful scripture there. One of my personal scriptures for ministry. That for me to stand up here before you, my job is to faithfully declare to you the whole counsel of God. To, as I go through the scriptures verse by verse, to not skip over portions that are difficult or that I think are going to be offensive to you, but to talk about them and to declare to you the counsel of God and to let His Holy Spirit speak to you. It's not my responsibility to change your life. That's what God does. His Word does that. My responsibility is to just teach and to give you the Word of God in a balanced and effective way. And then God works on you. God does amazing things in your lives. He changes you. Keep watch over yourselves. Now he's giving warning to the Ephesian elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of God which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in from among you, come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to dry, draw away disciples after themselves. So Paul says, watch out. There are going to be p- people out there who are going to try to come in and to rob the message that you have been given. So you guys are, are pastors, you're shepherds over the, the church. Pay attention, keep watch. But also know that from your own number will come those who will try to distort the truth and draw people after themselves. And Christian history is, is full, full of examples of that happening. People within the church who, who, who disturb the, the peace of God and the truth of God. In, in the third epistle of John, you know, John was one of the twelve. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one who was very close to Jesus. And yet he is writing an epistle to some people in his third epistle saying that a man named Diotrephes would not let John come and speak to the people because Diotrephes wanted the control. He wanted the power. He wanted the prestige. Now imagine that. But that was an example of what Paul is talking about. Someone who rose up from within the church, obtained power, and then tried to keep the message of, of, of truth from coming to the church. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, to prayer and to the study of the word, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All of the dangers of the minister. And I don't consider myself the only minister in this church. Everyone sitting out here in a pew is a minister. And you need to be aware of some of these dangers that can rise up in any of us. Covetousness, laziness, 
selfishness. We need to be aware of those things. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, as ministers, we are to be serving rather than being served. Not that it's bad to be served, but our focus ought to be outreach and and, and other-centered. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So a real powerful message there in, in Acts chapter 20 of the ministry, of who we are as Christians, how we see ourselves as Christians. And not only how we see ourselves as Christians, but how do we live that out in our lives? And I am so encouraged and and thankful for this congregation because I've seen numerous examples of little Pauls out there serving, reaching out, being other-centered. I've seen many here in this church who are very much concerned with the welfare of those around them. So let's keep that up. But let's not remember that we do have an enemy. We talked about that last week. Satan is trying to destroy us. Satan's trying to get us off of our game. And he will if he can. But I'll leave you with this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the message of encouragement that it gives to us. Lord, Paul commended the Ephesian elders to prayer and and to the ministry of the word. And, And I pray here, Lord, that we also would commit ourselves to to lives where we are taking account of who we are, where we recognize we are running a race and that we don't want to train sloppily, but we want to train, Lord God, as those who desire to win the prize. I pray that you would fill each and every person here with your Holy Spirit as they go forth and into their workaday world next week, Lord, whether it's in the home, in the community, in the workplace, traveling, whatever it is, Lord God. Give them a sense of your presence and the power that accompanies it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now. We're going to sing hymn 557, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.
right, let's gather around and we will pray for one another before we depart. All right, Praise, praises, joys, concerns. Anyone? Yeah, Tony. Thanks. Good to keep a sense of humor. Others? All right. Well, am I missing anybody? Oh, yes. Absolutely. All right. Heavenly Father, we pray for this person who has been diagnosed with breast cancer, we lift them up to you and, and ask for your healing touch upon them and your strength and grace with them. And for Charlie, as he continues recovery, Lord, that he maintain his sense of humor. And for Tony and Alicia, that you would guide and direct them to the next step, the next phase that you have for them. For this congregation, Lord God, once again, we give you thanks for all that you have done, continue to do, and will do among us. In Jesus' name. Sing Alleluia.